So today we're going to talk about how to be rich at Pax City. And the main idea comes from some verses that talks about being rich. And the Apostle Paul is talking to Timothy, and he says this. And if you're following along, you can follow along. It's in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Jesus' followers were commanded to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share. There's a lot of conversation in our country right now uh, about the problems we're facing, about what we should do, what we shouldn't do. A lot of people have a lot of really good ideas. There's some bad ideas out there. And everyone has an opinion on everything. And we want to commit ourselves to not just talking about it, but being, a part, but being about it. We want to be the collective solution to some of the problems we see in the world. But in order to do that, we have to begin with a problem. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, our problem starts 2,000 years ago. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter to first century Christians who were living in Jerusalem. And James was the pastor of the only Christian church uh, back in Jerusalem uh, after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. And he took over and he became the leader of that church. And there were some neighboring Christians and he wrote, they were in Israel and he wrote to them. And as a part of a letter, he addresses some of us today. And here's what we read. We're going to get through the first half of the first line. You ready? In James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, now listen, you rich people. Now, at this point, we can pause. Now, at this point, some of us are super glad. We're like, uh, this has nothing to do with me because I'm not rich. <laughs> and if you read stuff like this in the Bible, this is the point where most of us just say, okay, we need to skip ahead to the next section because obviously whoever wrote this doesn't know anything about me. And if they knew anything about me, they would know that I'm not rich. Uh, he's only talking to rich people right now. Well, the sometimes difficult truth to believe is that we are more rich than we think we are. And the reason we don't feel like we're rich is because, well, the reason we think we're not rich is because we don't feel rich. And no matter how much money we make, we don't feel rich. And the only time we actually feel rich is when we get our first paycheck in our first job. Does anyone remember their first job? Does anyone remember it by a show of hands? Yep, just very quickly. Oh, yep, up and down. Yeah, I remember mine. I worked for S&R Produce. S was for Sam. R was for Rick. It was a family-owned produce stand. And I worked for them, and it was so good. I was really good at stacking fruit. And they were like, you want to stack this fruit? And I'm like, yeah, I'll stack this fruit. I would stack, you know, I would stack it up. And the vegetables, and I would do it. And I was so good at it that I almost didn't get fired like 10 times. But when I got that first paycheck... I thought, I looked at it, and I was like, wow, I'm rich. What am I going to do with all this money? And that was the first and the last time I've ever felt rich. The truth is, we don't feel rich for a number of reasons. First, some of us, some of you, have no financial margin. No matter how much money comes in, 
No margin means that there's no financial peace. And in fact, some of you are making more money than you've ever made in your life or more money than you thought you would ever make, and you still feel a financial pressure, pressure that it would not make sense to anybody else in the entire world. And the other reason we don't feel rich and the reason we don't recognize that we're rich is because we know what everybody else has. We know what everyone else makes. We know what everybody else drives. We know the vacations that they go on. We know what everybody else wears. And then there's Instagram, and that's not helpful. It's a curse because everyone we look at on Instagram, they look better than us, and even their kids dress better than us, they look better, and everything looks better than our sucky little lives. Why can't I have more? Why can't I do more? Why can't I go on cool vacations like that? Why can't I travel without? Because I don't have it. And without meaning to, we can fall into something called the comparison trap. And the reality is, and you won't feel this, and there's no way to make you feel this, and the fact is it's not important that you feel this. The reality is, the starting point, the fact is, is that when we think about what we have or what we've been given or what we will have or what we're going to do with what we have, by international standards, by international standards, according to a statistic from the World Bank, the Bank of the World, whatever that is, the World Bank, if you have a household income of $34,000 a year, that puts you where? Sounds destructive over there, do you? <laughs> that puts you in the 1% club. That puts you in the top 1% wage earners in the entire world. And whenever I say this, I've said this before, I don't get a round of applause. We're not all like, oh my God, Lord, let's just respond and wash our bank because we're the 1% club. You don't feel it. You don't feel it. And you're not, if you're married or you're with your significant other here to your sweetheart, did you know we're in the 1% club? They go, no, you don't because you don't feel it. And there's no way to make you feel it. And the implications of this, the goal of this is not to make you feel guilty. The goal of what I'm saying is to help you feel responsible. There are millions of people around the world today that look at you and me and they go, wow, they are filthy rich. Now back to James. There's an assumption in the first century that people around the world, if they were rich, that meant that God loved them more, that they were more blessed. Rich people are favored by God. That's why they're rich. People who are sick or born with diseases, eh, not so much. Poor people, definitely not so much. You know, and God doesn't care about them so much. People thought that rich people were more loved by God. And then when Jesus came to the earth, he set the record straight. And we learned that, and now if you're taking notes, you can write these things down. There's a fill, fill in the blank. Rich people aren't more loved. Rich people are more responsible. Rich people are more accountable. Rich people are actually expected to give more, to be more, to serve more, because they have been given more opportunity. And so James says this. We went through the first half of the first line of the first verse. He says, now listen you, you rich people, now that we're clear on who's rich. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you, that is coming on you. And now this was a shocker. He's saying, rich people, you're not as secure as you think you are. And we're thinking, well, wait a minute. Rich people are the most secure. They have the most secure future. They, people, never, people who are wealthy never worry about the future, right? People who are rich, they never worry about money, right? Well, you see, James is smart. James knew that the more you have, the more you tend to worry. 
Because rich people make the terrible mistake, the terrible mistake that most of us make, and if you've made this mistake, it may actually mean you're rich. Rich people have a tendency to put their trust in their wealth rather than in the one who richly provided it for them. And this is something that poor people do. Poor people never put their money in their riches because they don't have any. And that's what happens. So as soon as you begin to accumulate, as soon as I begin to accumulate, as soon as, uh, and without meaning to, our trust migrates from our Heavenly Father, who is the provider of all good gifts, onto the stuff that he provided, onto what we can do with what we've been given. And this is so strange because many of us have more than we ever thought we would have, but we worry about it more than we've ever worried about it before. It's as if no matter how much we have, it's never enough because it never is enough. And it leads to an endless supply of what-ifs. What if the stock market? What if this thing with the thing, the investment doesn't come through? What if I have an unforeseen expense? What if uh, there's a medical condition? What if my husband, what if my wife, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And consequently, without meaning to, our trust migrates from our Heavenly Father to, well, to wealth and what our stuff is and what we can do with our stuff. And the statistics prove this. The more we get, the more we accumulate, the more we have, the quicker our hands close around it. So James keeps going. This is just the first verse. Now we're into the second verse. He says in verse 2, your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Look, you have so many clothes that the moths are eating them. Look, you have so much gold and silver stacking up, it's beginning to tarnish. It's actually beginning to lose value. It's decaying. It's depreciating. And James' point is simply this. You have held on to so much for yourself, it's not good to anything for anybody. No one can benefit from this. In my apartment which is huge, close to 750 square feet. It's beautiful. We have a pool, so that's cool. It's, not, it's a shared pool. Um, in our, in our um, living room, which is huge, which is like, you know, 700 you know, of the square feet, um, we have a coffee table. Lovely, beautiful. Is it mid-century coffee table? Beautiful. Um, no one's going to correct me here anyway. So we have a coffee table. And if you open those drawers, they're somewhat organized. Uh, but quickly, they're becoming one of those drawers. Do you know the drawer? Where you open it and you're like, oh my god, you would not be surprised if a hand fell out of it. <laughs> or if like, like something, uh, something crazy. You have that drawer in your house, it's got a pencil, it's got an eraser, it's got a gift card to Dave and Buster's from 16 years ago. It's, it's got like a lock that you don't know the combination to. It has all the things in the thing. We've got those, we've got those, and I know you do too. If you don't, you're a liar. Um, but um, we have one, and uh, in there you will find, I believe, is it one or two iPhones that just are unused, totally unused, just sitting around. And those iPhones, you know, uh, they sit there because I did the thing that I thought was the right thing to do in the moment. I thought, well, you never know, my iPhone might break, and I know I have the iPhone insurance, but I might need this iPhone. And so I put it in there. Had I sold that other iPhone, I could have given away the money to charity, and I could have got on with my life, or I could have given it to someone, and they could have got used for it. But the result is, you know, the thing that I did that thing, someday I might need this, someday I might need to be able to use this, and it disappeared into a drawer for like multiple years, and now it's back to haunt me for this talk. Because 
Because now it's not good to anything, it's not good for anything to anybody. And James reminds us that the issue is not how much comes in, it's how much stacks up. If you're taking notes, you can write that in. The issue is not what comes in, the issue is how much stacks up. It's what stacks up. And James, brother of Jesus, turns into a prosecuting attorney in this moment. And he leans into his audience and he says this, their corrosion will testify against you. The decay of all this stuff, the things we accumulate, the things that we hoard, you think you're doing a good thing by hoarding. You think you're doing a good thing by stacking it all up. It's actually the things, all the things that you're collecting are actually going to testify against you. There will come a day when you think all the things you're doing are good and responsible things, they will actually testify against you. People will look at your stuff and they will not think good and positive vibes towards you. They will think negative things about you. And then James gets really brutal. And he leans into their culture. He leans into the culture of the day in first century Israel. And he says, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Now, this is common judgment of God language. And in ancient times, uh, people were often judged publicly and they were, pub uh, they were punished publicly. And they were oftentimes punished violently. And people had a tendency to judge what happened on earth as it related to punishment of what God would do in the future. Now, James is saying that God would punish them for what they had mishandled, the stuff that they had been given. They had mishandled it ultimately because God provided for them. And James assumes that there's going to be an accountability one day, that everybody who has been given anything by God will be accountable for what they've been given. Now, why would he think that? Why would James think that we're going to be accountable for that stuff. Now, I know some of you here aren't sure what you believe about God. A whole personal God. I don't know what you think about judgment. I don't know if you feel like you're smarter than all that. And if you are, I get all that. I understand that. But James believed, James believed that God is actually involved in the details of our lives. And James believed that there is an afterlife. And James believed that we're accountable for how we live our lives because of one simple thing. It wasn't because of what he was taught. It wasn't because of something that he read. But he thinks this because of one single incident that happened in his life. Can anyone guess what it is? Here it is. Here's the one incident. James, he watched his brother Jesus crucified. He knew where his brother Jesus was buried. And then he had a conversation with his brother Jesus after he rose from the dead. And when you have a conversation with someone who comes back to life, comes back from the dead, you tend to start believing in eternal life. And so in the middle of James's life, James embraces this idea that his brother was actually God. And ultimately, James was killed and he was stoned to death for running around Jerusalem believing that his brother Jesus rose from the dead and that he was Lord and he was the Messiah. And uh, James, he had a conversation with his brother Jesus. He tells us that there's an afterlife. And he tells us that we're accountable to our Heavenly Father for what we do with our stuff. Now, in case 
we, he thinks that we're missing the point here. James tells us straight up. He says, their corrosion will testify you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And the implication of this is that the end is near. And uh, so, I, you know, it, that doesn't mean anything for us in terms of like end times, maybe you were taught when you were growing up, but here's what it means. It means why hoard when the time is short? Now, this is a really interesting question for you. It's a really interesting question for me. Maybe you're a religious person, maybe you're not. Regardless, uh, it is something that we all have to wrestle with. Why would we hoard and save for a future as if we're going to live forever? Here's what I know. You are going to run out of time before you run out of stuff. And for most of us, not all of us, but most of us, are, uh, we're going to run out of time before we run out of money. Now, let me talk about it this way. Have you ever had a relative that either passed away or they um, maybe they had to downsize, move to a smaller place, or maybe they moved into a nursing home or something like that? And it, have you ever had the responsibility of walking into their place and helping to clear out or downsize or move everything out of the place? If that's you, you know, have you ever done that? Or maybe you've had a grandparent that passed away and you had to do something with the house. And, have you, and so uh, you walk around and there's all this stuff and the people... Uh, who used to live there aren't even living there anymore, and now you are the one who's responsible to take care of all this stuff. And you look at it all, and you look at all the clothes, and you go, man, they could have never worn all these clothes. Man, look at all this furniture. They probably didn't even use all this furniture. Man, they had all these trinkets with the things and the things, and they never probably used all of it. And suddenly, in that moment, all the stuff that was really important to them becomes an impediment to you, and you're just chucking that stuff. You're throwing a bunch of it away. Now, you might keep the valuable stuff, but, you know, you're chucking most of it. And now, some of, think about this. Think about it this way. Our children, and if you don't have children, just the next generation. You could say the next generation. Our children, the next generation, they're going to tell a story about our stuff. And our children, or if you'd like to have children, or you plan to have children, or just the next generation, someday will tell a story about your stuff and how you managed your stuff. And what we do now will be an example for what they see. What we do now will determine the story that they tell and the example they see. And this is what James is leaning into. He's like, Come on, wealthy people, you've hoarded your stuff, and time is short. Time is running out. I thought you were a smart, wealthy person. I thought you were increasing your wealth, increasing your capacity. You're not increasing capacity. Actually, the stuff you're hoarding is starting to lose value. You have depreciating assets on your hand, and it's going to testify against you one day. It's tough. James is being tough on him. So James, for some reason, I don't know, he thinks... He's losing his reader's attention. He says this, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers, because most of these people at this time who would be reading this were wealthy merchants, they were wealthy landowners. He says, uh, The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Wealthy landowners were often accused during this time of taking advantage of the people that worked for them. Uh, and the people that worked for them, 
because they worked for them, had no legal recourse. A landowner could offer a certain amount of money for a job, and then they could change their mind and not pay it. And the people who worked for them had no legal recourse. That's just the way it worked. And so the wealthy at this time were constantly leveraging their power and authority to the detriment of people who had less power. And he says, the cries of the people are crying out against you. Now, this should worry us a little bit. If you're a business owner, or you manage employees, if you're in the habit of looking for loopholes or to get out of doing what you said you were going to do, we call that integrity here, doing what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to do, doing it in the manner it's supposed to be done, that's integrity. Doing things without integrity with the people that report to you, not paying people what you say you're going to pay people, uh, not doing for them the thing you said you would do for them. He says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. These people had taken legal advantage of the less advantaged. And James' point is simply this. He says, he says uh, this, and you can, if you're taking notes, you can fill this in. Resource people shouldn't look for loopholes to get by with doing less. Resource people, especially for Jesus' followers, resource people should look for more opportunities to do more to do more, to be more, to be more generous. And if all there is to this life is this life, then forget all this. If all there is to this life is to accumulate more stuff, to make more money, to go on some cool vacations, eat all the food you want at the fancy restaurants, and do all the stuff that we want to do, and then when we die, it's all over, then there really isn't much point to listening to what we have to say or reading James and believing what he says. And if all there is to this life is just to say, you know, I have what I have and it's all mine, then we're justified in saying, you know, I don't owe anybody anything because I've earned every penny I have. And I get that. I understand that point of view. But if there is more to this life, and of course, James, the brother of Jesus, who watched his brother raised from the dead, he would say, of course there's more to this life. I saw my brother killed, and then he came back to life. I, I definitely am starting to believe in the afterlife. And in case you're interested, uh, just as a side note, this is what Jesus said about this. He said, you're not an owner. It's not your stuff. And at the end of the day, you're just a steward, you're just a manager, and uh, one day you're going to have to be accountable for the stuff that you took care of as an owner, and God owns everything. And so, according to what Jesus taught, uh, and this is the flip side of this, and if there's more to this life, you are to be commended for working hard. You can fill that in. You're to be commended for working hard. You're to be commended for saving money. You're to be commended for being responsible. You know, I know for me, uh, my wife and I, we have more resources than I thought we would ever have. And um, we don't even have that much. And part of why I think we've done so well is that we have no financial goals. <laughs> and if you have no goals, then you'll find that you've done really well for yourself. <laughs> And, um, you know, I mean, we're just not great goal setters when it comes to that. And Nikki and I, we're so grateful for all the things that we have. And uh, we're so grateful that we get to do more than we ever thought we would do. And we get to give more. But it didn't fall out of the sky. I certainly didn't scoop it out of uh, these offering baskets. And, uh, it, you know, back when other people were just, we were watching people who were all roughly the same age. And, like, we watched people make some weird financial choices. And they were frittering. their consumer debt. There was all the things that were coming. You know, we, we were like, man, we'll just stay home. We'll kind of save some money. We'll work it out differently. We try to save every penny, every penny that we've earned. And when I read this, I feel good because I am commended 
for working hard. Nikki is commended for working hard. I'm, we are both commended for being a good steward of the resources that we've been given with our time and our talent and our treasure that we brought, that God brought our way. But we also discover, and you will also discover, that we are commended for working hard, but we are commanded to be generous. I am commanded to be above average generous. I am commanded to give more and to be more and to serve more, uh, even if I've earned it. Because I am still responsible what I have in light of what God has given me, which is every single gift. He put me in the family that I'm in. He put me in America in the time that I'm in. He, uh, he gave me the opportunities that I was able to take advantage of. And he certainly gave Nikki the opportunities that she's been able to take advantage of. And at the end of the day, no matter what we've accomplished or what we've earned, we're still accountable to our Heavenly Father. Why? Because at the end of our life, we're going to leave it. How much of it are we going to leave? 100% of it. Someday, one day, somebody else will have all of our stuff, which means it's not really our stuff. But James isn't done. He keeps going. He says in verse 5, he says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. He says, basically, you've become greedy. You've fallen into the consumption assumption. Have you ever heard that before, the consumption assumption? It rhymes. Consumption assumption. The consumption assumption is this. If it comes to me, it must be for me. If it comes to me, it must be for me. If it comes to me, it belongs to me, and I can do whatever I want with it. I, James says, no, 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 no. That's not the way the real world works. That's not how it works in God's economy. That's not what I'm trying to say here. Just because it came to you doesn't mean it's for you. And just this next part we're going to read will probably go right over our heads, uh, and it will elicit zero emotion in you because it makes no sense to us today. But when James wrote this down, and then they did whatever they did with the lettering, uh, however they shipped letters. I don't know how they did it, you know, post office. And uh, it got delivered. And they read this aloud at the next church service. When these guys read this, this was a showstopper. It was completely a showstopper. And uh, he just doesn't want them to miss the gravity of all this. And he says, little did you know, the truth is, you can follow along in verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. To which we are all like, what does that mean? That means absolutely nothing. Well, in this day and age, rich people, when they had uh, money, what they would do is, and then when they had cattle, they would pick a calf and they would put it in a pen by, away from it, everything else, and they would overfeed it and they would take care of it and they would pet it and they would name it and all the stuff, and they would protect it from any kind of harm, and they would guard it because eventually they were going to have something to celebrate. Now, when you and I have something to celebrate, 
Uh, we and we have Thanksgiving and we have uh, Christmas coming up. Those are two major holidays. Didn't know you need you know call your mom. Make sure you know what's going on. And uh, so you have those holidays coming up, and you want to do something for Thanksgiving. What do you do? You just go out and you order a Christmas turkey to be delivered. Mmm, so delicious. And, or maybe you want to do a Christmas ham. Does anyone want Christmas ham? And you go and you order the Christmas ham. And it gets delivered to your house, and it's totally cool, and everything's good. And if you don't like it, you're like, hey, this isn't what I expect. You just run out to the grocery store and you pick up another one. Or if extra people are coming over to your house uh, for a potluck, and you're like, oh no, extra people are here. Uh, maybe we should just go get an extra turkey. You just go pick it up, and that's how you can take care of it. And we can do everything last minute in this culture. Uh, but back then, the only thing that kept was grain and wine. And, uh, and if you were, had a little bit of money, you could have a little bit of cattle. So you could have a little uh, meat when you had celebrations. So here's the thing that James is doing with this illustration. He's saying, look, you rich people, you think you're so smart. You think you're planning way, way ahead. But you're actually planning for your own embarrassment. You're planning by fattening up the calf, thinking that you're going to have something to celebrate, and you're going to slaughter that calf, and you're going to eat the meat because something good has happened. And then he looks at him and he goes, you have fattened yourselves up for the slaughter. You think that all you've accumulated and hoarded is going to be a celebration, but at the end of the day, it's going to be for your own embarrassment. And when this was read... These people read what James wrote. They were probably shocked. They were shell-shocked. Now, James, we know that he was martyred in the year 62. He was stoned to death illegally by commission of the high priest. And there was this transition from, of governors and the high priest took it upon himself to get rid of this pain in the neck. His name was James. And they said, let's just get this guy stoned. Let's get him out here. He won't shut up about his brother who came back to life. Um, and so they had him stoned. He got killed in 62. And by the way, if you go try to look for this in the Bible, you can't find this. It's actually actually recorded by a Jewish historian named Josephus. Uh, he recorded it. And you can read about the stoning of James. But here's the fascinating part about this. Seven years later, seven years later, after, after the stoning of James, all the rich people, they found themselves trapped in Jerusalem with the entire Roman army surrounding them and all of their stuff. And eventually, all of them were starved. A bunch of them got diseases and died. Others were murdered by Jews because of mob conflict that was happening within the city, or they were enslaved by the Romans. Every single one of them that was in that city at that time was expelled one way or another. And get this, all of their wealth, everything they owned, it was carted off to Rome. Those with the most to lose, lose the most. Now, did James know what was going to happen? I don't know. I mean, Jesus predicted this would happen, but he didn't give a date or a time. I don't know if James knew historically the circumstances around what would happen, but James knew ultimately that what happened to them is the thing that would happen to each of us, that one day our lives are over, and what we did with our stuff will say about, as much about us as anything. So the moral of the story here is that we should give while the given's good. 
what I cling to now may be a source of embarrassment to me later. Now, I'm going to let you sort all that out personally. Um, There's a personalness to this. I, I get that. And some of you are Christians. Some of you believe and follow Jesus. I, I get that too. And some of you don't know what you believe. And you're exploring faith and you're saying, you know, I'm not sure what I believe, plus how much longer is this? And I get that. It's only going to be 80 more minutes. But here's the thing. You and I will have to give an account. And you and I are going to have to figure out and think about what James said. But in the meantime... We as a church, we're inviting you to take action together. And remember how we started when I talked to the, when I started this morning. You can read it along with me. It's in 1 Timothy 6. It says, "Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share." And in this Thanksgiving and Christmas season, we want to do that. We have an opportunity to be rich in good deeds and to be generous with all we have. And all the things that Pack City does on Sunday, all the things that we do during the week, all the vision that we have for this community, these are the practical ways that you and I get to be rich together to live out this generosity every day and every week. And the thing is, is that in order for us to be rich in love and good deeds as a church, this requires time and money. It requires time and money. And Pack City is actually funded by the tithes of its regulars, regular attenders who choose to give faithfully. And Pack City is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then, uh, but it is also with the people of God, you and I, who are the hands and the feet of Jesus. And we give our time and our talent in order to do the things that God's leading us to do. So it's a, it's a combination of time and talent and treasure that we live out these things at Pack City. So today... Uh, I'm inviting you to 100% participation. That uh, 100% participation for everybody who either calls Pack City their church home or who regularly attends this church. Uh, I know sometimes we can live in the ambiguity of like, I'm not sure if I uh, am a, uh, uh, this is my church home, but I come here every week. So there's some ambiguity there. So I'll let you sort that out. But for people who call this their church home, this is for you. And if you're visiting here for the first time, or if like you're just kind of doing the Thrive in Five, this is not for you. This is a family conversation. So you can just sit back and enjoy. Um, But we are looking for 100% participation. And I'm looking for 100% of us to begin tithing. And what that means is when we look at tithing, tithing is something that we see in the scriptures. We read that this is the standard to which God calls us to. We also see that 10% is the floor. It's not the ceiling, meaning that where, and this is where we get the term tithes and offerings. You ever hear what we talk about tithes and offerings? Well, a tithe literally means tenth, and it's what God invites us to give out of, our, out of what we earn. But an offering, the reason we use offering, offering is the above and beyond gift that we give beyond that 10%. We give this to a charity, we give it to uh, people in need or a church or so on. And so tithing is not an offering of our choosing, it's not, uh, at least not according to the scripture, it's not like just picking an amount that feels good to us, but it's an actual 10% gift. Tithing means 10. We also see that tithing is a big deal to God uh, in the Bible because 
God doesn't need our money, but it's because it, uh, God invites us to give for a reason. And I, I don't know if you've ever read this, but it's in the Bible, and it's very interesting. It's one of those places where God tests our faith. Usually, he tests our faith in two areas, sex and money. Uh, these are the two areas he usually tests us. Uh, but there's the only place in Scripture where God says, test me. God, test me. He doesn't say test me when it comes to certain things in our life, but when it comes to finances, he says, test me. Tithe. Give 10%. See what happens to you. It's the only place here he says, Test me, and I see if I will not open the floodgates of blessing in your life. Does he promise uh, financial blessing, kind of like a health and wealth gospel thing? No, he does not. He does not do that. But he does offer blessing for those, and he says, test me. He says, test me, Ty, see what happens. And when it comes to blessing, God often blesses us as we choose to obey in faith, even when we don't know what that will turn out to be. And so, you know, just a word uh, to some of us here. If you are currently tithing at Pacific City Church, if you're giving that true 10%, I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you for doing that. Your tithe doesn't go right into my pocket. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't go somewhere, you know, whatever. Your tithe is actually a gift to God because of what God has done and blessed you in your life. That is a gift that you're giving back to God, and I believe that. And I would say, may God continue to bless you as you press into that, for those of you that do that. I would also ask you, pray and consider the ways that God might lead you to be above and beyond givers in this next season. Maybe it's charity water. Uh, that's something that we always like to give to. Maybe it's heifer.com, heifer.org, not heifer.com. I don't know where that's going to take you, heifer.org. Uh, <laughs> heifer.org, where you can buy an animal that helps feed a family with a thing, with a thing. There's all these different opportunities. Where are the opportunities where you can give above and beyond because God has given generously to you? So I'm not, you know, Upward Bound House. We've done some things with Imagine LA. So pray and consider what that is for you. And for those of you who are not tithing and you consider Pack City your church home, again, if you're a visitor, just sit back and enjoy. Uh, but I'm inviting you to begin tithing. We're inviting you to begin tithing and give and to be faithful to the scriptures, what God invites you to do and God commands, uh, God commands us to do. Also, if you're not tithing and you consider this your church home and you have extenuating circumstances, which is, you know, maybe you found yourself in some personal debt, some consumer debt, some credit card debt, some things that are going on. Um, you know, you're living on the margins, as I described earlier. I'm inviting you to pray and consider how you can get into a healthy financial situation. Some of you are in an unhealthy financial situation, and that needs to change. We have resources for you to do that because I believe that God wants to bring financial freedom to every single person. We believe that. We want that for you, but it requires sacrifice for you to get there. So in terms of your giving, if you can't do that because of other decisions that were made in the past, whether they're decisions that you made upon their, your own responsibility or things that happened to you that have affected you, it doesn't matter. What you want to do is we want to help you get to a healthier financial situation. I can talk with you about that as well. Uh, but we just encourage you to not, if you can't give the 10, if you can't give a true tithe, then you should consider a percentage that you can give and commit to that. And as your life becomes healthier, as your financial situation becomes healthier, then you can commit to give more. But we really do. We don't want to just be like, hey, just give. We want you to become financially healthy, just like we want your body to be healthy. We want your mind to be healthy. We want your spiritual, your spiritual health there and everything. Your financial peace needs to be there as well. So here's why you're invited to do this. This church is impact. Now, I know we're restarting, 
And uh, COVID blew everything up for everybody in every church, and we're all just all the pastors are sitting around going, what happened? Um, and did you know that over 50% of the church in America just hasn't shown back up the church? Did you know that's happened? So we're all in this, figuring it out. We're outside in a field because COVID. And uh, we're doing this. But over the last three years, the impact of this church has been, like, small but mighty. The impact of this church over the last year, we've seen over 50 people give their lives to Jesus. Some of those people have gone on to do some amazing things. They've left L.A. We're getting requests to baptize people now. We've, requ- we've baptized other people in the past. We're getting re- requests to do that now. And actually, if that's something you're interested in doing, we would love to baptize you. As we've prayed for people, we believe God has heals people. We've seen God get, uh, get involved in the details of our life. We've seen dozens of people healed. Now, I'm not exaggerating here. We've actually helped thousands of people who live on the margins, who are homeless or poor. We've helped thousands of people get what they need through some of our partnerships in the city, through Imagine LA, through Upward Bound House, Salvation Army, and others. We've had a massive impact in trying to say, you know, hey, we care not just about us, this little north of Montana church, but we actually care about what's happening in the community. And we've also been able to appropriately build a bridge between mental health and God's spiritual power and what he wants to do with our lives, where we've actually seen the Spirit of God bring healing to people's past and the issues they face. So now that they're walking in a healthier situation and in their life situations, they're actually healthier in the way that they uh, work with people and live and the way they treat their parents and the way they deal with the thing that happened to them in the past. God has done a powerful work in them. So we're ready to do more. We want to be more. We're ready to go to the next level. Our vision for the next 12 months is to see hundreds of people encounter God through this church. And we're going to invest in you. We're going to invest in some of you who are going to become leaders. We're going to invest in new ministries. And we're going to build the church in which our friends and our neighbors can encounter the living God. And we're going to partner with the community to be the change that we want to see in the world. And so what I'm inviting you to do is to take seriously the words of James and to take seriously the words of Paul. We're inviting you to give and to give generously. And we're also inviting you to serve. It would be great for 100% participation if everyone would join a team. We could join a team. We can make Sundays a great place for people to encounter God. And then also we can be generous with our time and serve people during the week with our time and our energy and our talents. And so as you give and as you serve in Pack City, I believe that we can, be a, uh, we can have a stronger impact and we can flourish and we be, can become the life-giving church that God has called us to be in 2022. And so the thing is this, if you're a Christian and you know this is clear, Jesus says that the, your devotion to God, your devotion to the God that you cannot see, your devotion to God is best demonstrated and most authenticated through your love of the people that you can see. And as a Christian, over-the-top, extravagant generosity is the absolute perfect response in light of God's extravagant grace to us. And I don't want us to miss this opportunity. We want to make a huge difference. We want to make a huge difference this Thanksgiving and this Christmas and this next year and to make a huge difference in our community. And so let's give Let's serve. Let's love. Let's show our community that religion is more than just sermons and songs. Let's demonstrate the generosity and the compassion that Jesus has shown for us for the rest of our world. Uh, Let's be rich together.